Hello, and welcome to the MGMA Insider Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. Today, we have a special Insider episode. We're joined by three guests, Melissa Philippi, who is president and co-founder of Performance Culture, Inc., Dr. Philip Brown, who's chief physician executive at New Hanover Regional Medical Center, and Dan Goodwin, vice president for the physician group at NHRMC. New Hanover is located in Wilmington, North Carolina. And in fact, all three of our guests are located in the Wilmington, North Carolina area. They have a fascinating story to share with our listeners today about how the leadership at NHRMC was able to build a culture that could grow and thrive in the day-to-day stresses of a hospital network, but also have a plan in place for a natural disaster, such as the one they experienced with Hurricane Florence. You know, Dr. Brown and Dan are are here to join us today because of really their experience and their background. And one of the topics and the goals of the research report is how can medical practices, how can healthcare organizations really reduce employee burnout, physician and non-physician alike? And, And how can you do that through the focus of intentionality with your culture and having a healthy culture? That's our premise of the research report, but is that right? Is that the answer? Is that an answer? And if so, how can you do that? If someone were to ask you that question, how can you really impact burnout, decrease burnout? I I think it starts with culture and taking the time to invest in creating the right culture will set you up when you do have either emergent situations or just, um, you know, your typical um, daily grind to get through. What we found the biggest impact that we've had in, in creating a good sound culture is making it fun again. Like too many times people just get focused on the mundane things and coming in and, and having to solve problems. And what we've done in our practices in particular from a cultural perspective is we've given the ability for our employees to have um, em- employment engagement councils. We give them a, 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 just a side of money and it's very small amount to create fun events within their practices that gets them engaged and interested in coming into work. And that's kind of really the foundation that we work with is setting the fun up with our employees. And then from there, um, you can go ahead and you got you got you have to track at, uh, what your um, engagement looks like. You have to set goals. Uh, and and align uh, the staff to those goals. But if you don't have the right foundation and you're not having fun and employees aren't having fun to try to get to part two or part three, what we found is that you end up with employees that are distrustful of the process. So again, part of the way to get them to trust you and and be open with you, in my opinion, is to have fun at work again. And uh, Dr. Brown, you had earlier talked about uh, your... A past career, maybe it was as a basketball coach, is something about that kind of coaching and teamwork, is that integrated into the leadership models that you develop? It's huge, actually. The two are real, real tightly parallel, if you will. And I want to start with kind of a story of where we are in our culture, just a small example from the hurricane. And then I can say a little bit about how we got there. But So one of the things we did after the hurricane was set up a relief center for supplies for our employees. We had about 10% 
uh, of our workforce whose homes were severely affected by the flood, many of whom had total losses. And my wife actually had a chance to spend a lot of time working in the relief center and helping these people get supplies. And we had one employee who came in and only wanted a single pack of diapers. And my wife says, well, you know, we've got all this stuff. Do you need, you know, can I just get you some more stuff for your needs for your children and everything? And she said, no, this is all I can take right now because I can only drive to within a half a mile of my house. And then the last half a mile, I have to get in a canoe and paddle to my house. And so it's really inspiring to have a workforce that is that dedicated to coming in and, and serving their fellow man, basically. But it really starts when people recognize each other's vulnerability and the the concept around it is no more complicated than any other heroic event that you hear of. Why does somebody go to great extremes to help somebody else? It's because they would do it for them and they know that. And so we spend a lot of time actually at leadership levels talking about our own vulnerabilities and making sure that everybody understands that we're all subject to the same human condition and we're all in there to help each other uh, get by. We've made no, uh, no secret all the way from the CEO level, my level, Dan's level, all the way through that family is most important and that we consider each other uh, extended family. And that does miracles for your culture. Just as a starting point, it gets you to a fundamentally different place uh, and gives you something to really build on. Um, and, and that's the same way that you would then construct your team because you've got everybody now, you're, you're all at least in a place of some level of trust. And in the case of Hurricane Florence, huge common experience. Nothing brings people together like a crisis. But of course, we had this before. And what it becomes at that point is instead of having to work so hard on building that basic level of trust, you begin to set up things like standards that you would expect to treat each other by. And then everybody sort of learns that set of rules that, you know, this is how we intend to treat each other because we have respect for each other and we have a really important common mission that we're trying to achieve in the community. And it just works. It just builds on itself from there. Yeah, you, you said something very insightful that a crisis really uh, brings out the best and the worst of people in many ways, but it really does, it, it challenges people. And it's some of the, the ideas that you put in place, the philosophies so that people can react and respond to those crises. What did you do prior to that? Sure, so it's not our first hurricane, and it's not our first, uh, we'll call it a shelter experience. We call it shelter in place. We've had to do it for several ice storms as well, because based on our region, any little bit of ice actually paralyzes us, in many cases worse than the hurricanes do. But we have a command center structure that we go into um, at, based on a preset time frame from onset of disaster, if you will. And it has enough people to run the entire hospital part of the enterprise 
24-7 for the duration. We bring in extra food. We bring in extra fuel for generators. We have all kinds of things set up. We have, you know, utility companies on standby. We have our, it's, it's a huge operation to do that we actually practice and plan ahead for. And then we have basically a couple of command structures. You, I mean, you may have for during the storm, you'll probably have a duplicate command structure so you can do day and night. And you also have day and night shifts. So we had a small city during the storm of about 2,500 uh, employees and patients together in our facility. And then we have uh, another team that is basically at home during the time and as soon as that shelter is broken based on the uh, safe travel conditions, then that team comes in and replaces everybody that was there. That actually provides one of our greatest challenges in a long storm like Florence, because what you see is when you have this culture of highly motivated people, and there are two fundamentally different tasks. The, while you're there during the storm, it's very, you know, everybody together, you know, you got physical plant challenges that have to be dealt with. And it just, it brings everybody into a, you know, a close proximity. And then when that breaks and you have to stand everything back up, I mean, we've got 40 facilities. Then it's a whole different challenge. And so the, our, our biggest uh, uh, sort of diplomatic hurdle was how do you, disengage those people who have been so highly engaged so that the next team can come on where people have been there for five days this time, tired as they can be, um, you know, and, and they just need a break and they need to go and check their homes and things like that. And, but they also just need to disengage from the process. And so the intentionality behind setting up the system like that is really important. Because, you know, it's not something we stumbled on. We know it's like that. It's like that every time that you just have to shift gears and take on a fundamentally different task. And it's easiest to do that if you make a clean break of the leadership. It also sends a tremendous message to the entire organization. So, for instance, in, in the case of Florence, our CEO um, was incident commander during the storm and our COO was the flip side of that coin during the storm. And then after the storm, I was incident commander. Both of those people left completely, went home, took care of their stuff. That was a message to the whole organization that, you know, it was okay to make sure that you're taking care of yourself, your family and, we have this taken care of here. And when you come back, we'll be ready for you. I think a lot of what he's saying and what you asked earlier is, uh, I think there, there was some allusion to behaviors and core values. And, you know, all of everything that he said comes with, of course, careful operational, operational excellence, operational planning, but you have to have teammates and employees that are willing to do this kind of stuff. They're not going to be willing to do, to be, respond that way if they don't see leaders responding this way and modeling that behavior. So that's kind of where the, I think the research report really kind of speaks to is that behavior modeling that we were talking about from a the, the performance culture standpoint from our experience with working with healthcare organizations and really all organizations that a, an organization is only as healthy as its top leader. So we talk about a performance culture having a defined set of core values 
that everybody is in alignment with, that they all know, that, that you can lean on, and from those core values, what are those workplace behaviors that demonstrate those core values? And we then say, okay, how can we translate that into coaching? So we've got alignment on that, and then we need to coach our employees. And that's where we use that performance values matrix that I think you've seen with performance culture, where we're going to really lean heavily on not only being a great company and winning, uh, winning with our high performance and high patient standards, and, and also on our revenue, we've got to have that, but also how do we do it in a way that has those behaviors that are displaying the, the core values, you know, that we uh, have a healthy get it, get it done culture. So I will turn this over to Dan in just a second, but I want to put a little background spin on what you see, particularly in the physician leadership component uh, that you're talking about. And then I'm going to get Dan, ask Dan if he will sort of go over how we have recently uh, really, he has done it more than anybody else, revamped our physician leadership culture. Um, but in general, what happens in, in medical training is that a lot of your leadership tendencies get beaten out of you as a part of that process. So you've got four years of medical school and three to eight, nine, ten years of residency training. During that time, many of the leadership qualities you may or may not have had uh, get extincted, and they're certainly not specifically addressed, which is a, a real gap for us. And we're actually starting to do some things in some of our residency programs to, to remedy that, but that's a whole different story. But what happens is that, with the exception of physicians who take a special interest in, in leadership, and begin to pursue it on a parallel track, there's no experience that really occurs to any meaningful level in training. And then all of a sudden they come out of the chute as someone who's supposed to be in charge and be able to lead a team. The, the stresses associated with that, whether it's the stresses of, of just being ineffective in leading that team or the behaviors that you really don't have the, the techniques to deal with in a productive way, those things are big drivers of burnout. So what we did as a part of our strategic plan was to make provider engagement a major component. It's one of our major strategic initiatives. And physician leadership and governance is one of the three uh, key headings under that and provider burnout is another one. And so by having that, again, systematic emphasis on something that we know is a problem, it gives us a great focus to be able to address it. And as a result, we've gotten a number of physicians engaged in those initiatives specifically. And then Dan has done some great things in terms of our medical group. Um, so our facility, we have about 300 providers that are our medical group, but that's slightly less than half the total medical staff. So I'm going to let Dan talk a little bit about how he really uh, got the uh, physician leadership group uh, reconnected and purpose-driven again. Yeah, I think um, one, of the, uh, one of the interesting things, too, in healthcare, what we've done is we've determined that we need more physician leadership. So we've come to that conclusion, and it's the right conclusion. But it, I bet if you asked um, the individuals that hired Dr. Brown into his position, 
give me an idea of what you see me doing on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm not sure that they could have answered that question adequately. That we've come to the decision that it's important, but we haven't created much structure behind any of it. And I think one of the things that these platforms do is they provide that type of structure. They determine the types of traits that you're looking for in those individuals. They help you determine maybe where you have strengths and or weaknesses so that you can create a plan in order to improve yourself to help get there. But I think one of the things that we've done in healthcare, as we often do, is we've rushed into something because it's a great idea, but we really haven't flushed it out like, um, um, like I think would have been beneficial. Um, some of the things that we have specifically done on developing our physician leaders, we had a, a chronic issue, I think, at our um, physician leadership groups where we didn't really know what to talk about. Um, so by default, what we were doing is bringing up operational lower level issues that were just burrs in the saddle, which were often incredibly difficult to solve. And we felt like consistently we were just spinning our wheels and getting nothing done. That led to physicians feeling higher burnout rates because they're spending their time doing this stuff and we're not accomplishing anything. And also, you know, physicians are very um, results oriented. So if there's no results at the end of it as well, again, that's another thing that helps from a burnout, uh, that helps lead to a burnout. Same thing with the administrator. I'm the one leading these things. And for us to spend two hours with our physicians and really not have concrete things, that didn't make me feel so good on the administrative side. So what we did is we actually stopped, took a pause, took the opportunity to come up with a charter for our our network level physician group. Now this is not, this is something you can do at a network level, at a smaller practice level. And we created a charter, started off with a vision statement. And then we went down into these are the four or five key focal points that we're, that we're gonna take a look at. Uh, and then we started crafting our agendas around that. One of the mistakes that I personally made as an administrator is I always felt like I needed to have a populated agenda. For some reason, I was so fearful of an empty agenda because uh, I was afraid there wasn't going to be much dialogue or I wouldn't be able to control where the dialogue went. I eventually got more comfortable with that. And what I found is the meetings that we now have, we, we, we have the charter that helps us keep on track. And then with the open-ended discussion, it gives us a lot of opportunity to think about um, strategic level items and we're not floating down to hey send me your agenda items and they get populated with geez I don't like this benefit or I don't you know this person's not keeping up with my charge entry I need to talk about that and that's the type of stuff we were talking about in a 300 provider network which just wasn't getting us any anywhere but we found that having structure in place and open dialogue with our doctors has really helped us brainstorm and improve our results um, other things uh, that I'd say is from a cultural perspective to drive culture, you need to first understand where your culture is and what personalities are within your culture. Um, one of the, the stories that I have, uh, I, I took one of the personality tests and I used to have this employee that would work with me and we didn't really know until we started talking about our personality types, we would drive each other nuts. <laughs> okay. I'm... I'm more on the red side of things and I want to get in and, and take care of business. And then after that, I can take a deep breath and we can sit there and, and have fun and joke around. The other individual was much more social oriented 
and wanted to have this, those social discussions up front and then get down to business. So she's coming in trying to talk about social things and how things are going with the family. I'm like, we got these five things to get to. Come on, we need to move. <laughs> and then she would basically took that from me as being disinterested in her on a personal basis. But it's because I wanted to get it out of the way and relax and then be social. And she wanted to be social and then get down to business. But until we took these tests, we didn't really understand how we interacted from a cultural perspective. Once we did that, what we determined is we could talk for about five, you know, yeah. five to ten minutes socially, and then we get down to business, and then we would um, go ahead and, and finish on a social note as well. But unless you take the time to understand this stuff, you won't know. And if I jump to conclusions, that person uh, had a lot of good traits, but we weren't interacting really well. And was that really that person's fault? Was that my fault or is that just because we didn't sit there and take the time to understand one another and how we need to interact with each other? People listening, what can they do then when they do see there are those different types of personalities, talented people, but that maybe don't immediately mesh? And then how do they uh, recognize those differences? And then how can they bring those together and be uh, complementary of one another? So I would say, you know, we, we did spend a tremendous amount of time going through that learning process of, of what the personality types meant and how to, how to interpret what you actually were seeing on a day-to-day -day basis, but not just recognizing it. Um, I think as it's valuable. I've been through a bunch of different ones over the last dozen years and you can't, in fact, I've got it on my to-do list for this, my weekend quiet time is to go back through, uh, I've got a whole notebook of the different ones I've taken, which are strikingly similar, as you might imagine. But, you know, to go back and, and look back at it just for that self-awareness piece. But the one thing that I would say that if there is a way to simplify how you get out of the gate, there's one thing that I think simplifies everything, and that is you have to create the culture of most respectful interpretation. If that's your starting point, then you're you're in a good place then you can do the more sophisticated things that allow you to really refine it but you have to you have to start with that expectation that says you know we're all here part of this organization because we have it we're bound to have at least some common values we believe in what we're trying to accomplish and so I'm going to give my teammates the benefit of the doubt right out of the gate and make sure I really clarify what I'm hearing and what I'm feeling. Then when you do those assessments and learn, then you can have incredibly more powerful one-on-one -on -one conversations or, or even group conversations to really get yourself to a much higher function in place. But, but it really takes work. Thank y'all so much. I know we're up against time, but I, I really appreciate y'all coming together and sharing this with the audience. Thank you, Daniel. We really appreciate the time too. We're very grateful for this opportunity. Thanks again to Melissa Philippi, Dan Goodwin, and Dr. Philip Brown for joining the Insider Podcast today. To access the entire catalog of episodes or to offer us suggestions or feedback, please go to mgma.com slash podcast.